We used to have a saying in the Marines was, there's never a bad recruit, there's only a bad instructor. And it should be looked at in the same light within the civilian world, within business. We chose this life. We chose to be founders. So remember that. I come from the military. I spent 10 years between 2008, 2018, 19-ish. And during the height of the Afghan wars, all, all of that stuff. And I've had the privilege of kind of practicing this, ready for this journey. So this is Vulnerable, the first founder mental health podcast powered by Founders Taboo. Let's get into it. Fuck it. <laughs> uh... <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm a massive David Brent fan and yeah, that is a yeah. great start. Uh, it's oh. a really good start. That is proper partridge. Um, <laughs> ben Williams, welcome to Vulnerable. Thank you for having me on. How are you? Oh, I'm sweating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because being a military man, I'm always on time. Mm. And I was eight minutes late to this. You were. And I was sweating from running slash just sweating at my own lack of <laughs> discipline. <laughs> I think the minutes are getting longer mm. the more years I've been out for how I'm late to everything. Yeah. Um. I found with you... Because obviously, actually, we've been inadvertently speaking for some time, mm. and I've been really shit recently. Mm. Um, that I can blame on ADD, ADHD, and just hyper-focused on one thing. Yeah. And if anybody tries to come in, it's like, come on, mate, no, sorry. Yeah. It's, it's like, on, literally on my business or on my projects. And other than that, like, good luck trying to, trying to get me to make dinner. Like, Abby, fuck me. I don't know how she does it. <laughs> but... I feel like I've known you for a long time. It does feel like yeah, that, doesn't it? Yeah, weird. Really weird. Yeah. There's been various people on LinkedIn who've been like, oh, you need to speak to Ben, and vice versa, and then obviously a business partner, Anthony. And you joined my founder's mental health group, which I kind of started with two other guys, but apparently they kind of we started it and then just... They just didn't do anything about it. And I was like, and one of them's actually a member here, so, um, but I haven't actually met him yet, so I need to take the p p piss out of him because yeah. um, that's been a shambles. But um, yeah, it, it's it's actually really nice to meet you in person. Yeah, it is. You gave us a hug as I came in and I thought, that feels like a normal hug where it's like we're catching up. Yeah, yeah. That's how I felt. I was <laughs> like, I was, I was sat on the train listening to your episode with Stephen Bartlett thinking... I feel like I've known this guy for ages. Yeah. And that's how it uh, that's how it's kind of been. I am annoying like that. Yeah, slightly. Yeah. Um I'm going to go I'm going to go in full Stephen Bartlett mode actually. <laughs> um, I'm just going to adjust the uh... Everyone seems to do that now after uh, being on that episode. Everyone's no, like, "Right, I'm going to copy him and go straight in and ask the hard question." I so, I, I yeah, no, that's the, I I tend to I think the way Stephen plans his episodes are, mm. are really really good yeah um but most importantly like starting off where that where the hell do you start with an episode that's why i'm that mm. that is the tough part and naturally obviously you start from the beginning almost moving into chronological order um you're a founder of lupin first and foremost what the fuck does lupin do well, I'm a founder, so we're still trying to work it out. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, in its extraordinary way, Lupin's had its sort of 
pivots and moves over the last couple of years where I think we've tried to pigeonhole ourselves into things that possibly we don't belong in, which is mental health, well-being, mm. sentiment. There's a lot of stuff out there for that. And I think, I don't know if we were trying to jump on the train or be part of that, but we spent a while sort of taking out employee sentiment data and using that. And then we realized, hmm. I think we've built a digital leadership solution that enables team managers and leaders to understand their people better, which is where we're sort of evolving our technology towards, mm. which is probably what you've not seen yet, um, and how we actually now begin to use employee sentiment data to nudge the manager to say, hey, this person's not checked in for three or four days. Is everything all right with them? Why not book a catch-up? Or this person's been feeling low. Maybe bring that one-to-one -one forward and talk about these points and how we can actually begin to take information to the manager so they feel more equipped and armed to have conversations in the workplace they need to be having. And that's ultimately, ultimately where I think we're seeing our product go, which is more into that digital leadership solution because there's a huge problem out there where companies are spending... I'd say like 550 billion a year on leadership development. And it's all been done in a bit of a backward way around workshops and talks and courses. But we've got a new wave of people coming in now, which millennials and Gen Z that want to be led in different ways and also want to lead in different ways. So how do mm. we use almost that power of social technology to give this kind of peer-to-peer -peer feeling within within the product where a team has its own social space. They can lend kudos, they can praise and begin to comment soon. But we give something to the manager where they, it's useful to them to be able to action things within their day or week, which makes them, well, it elevates their leadership mm. and they come across more empathetic, more compassionate, and they're, they're less a manager and become more of a leader. And we want to basically create a world of more leaders and managers because it's completely lopsided at the moment. And that's where we're sort of taking the loop in now. Where did you start the business? Um, well, when I left the Marines, Ant and I went into coaching and we did leadership coaching. And did you kn did you know it was at, is Ant and a Marine as well? Yeah, but we only right. met outside the Marines. Interesting. Yeah. So it ironically, we actually stayed in the same building for a couple of months, but we never come across one another. So funny. Um, or at least remember one another. And then, yeah, when I left, we sort of hooked up uh, and that was kind of it. We went on this path to just create this. It was a cash cow, really. Like no VCs involved, no angels. It was just making cash and having a good time, lifestyle business. And that's all we wanted it to be. And we were working with one of the big banks. We ended up working with Facebook, um, England Football, just loads of different companies and different brands all around leadership. And then we started spotting that problem, which was this disconnect between managers and employees and why people dread going to work and why so many people don't get on with their managers. And actually, you are so many groups of people who here's had a bad manager and everyone puts a hand up. You got to look at it backwards. We used to have a saying in the Marines was there's never a bad recruit. There's only a bad instructor. And it should be looked at in the same light within the civilian world, within business, that it's, it's, I don't believe it's the manager's fault. I actually believe they're ill-equipped and they have no time. They're completely understaffed and they, have, they haven't got the proper training behind them to be an effective leader, and which is probably what they want to be. I ran a poll on LinkedIn not, not long ago. Are you a leader or are you a manager or are you both? I had no one tick manager. 
which I'm not surprised by. I had loads of people tick leader and then a few tick both. And then I kind of looked at the names and I thought, oh, it's interesting you think you're a leader or you think you're both and I would have put you more as a manager. And what's the differentiator there though? Well, manager's more of a process-driven, strategic, OKR, KPI type of person, which mm. you get the job done. That's very much the manager. Get the job done. A leader's more vision, they're more empathetic, they're more compassionate, they're people, they're people, people. Um, but we live in a world now where you need to be a blend of both. You have to be able to manage your team at the same time being able to lead them. And part of being a great leader is how are you today? Like, what is your well-being? What drives you? How's your mental health today? Oh, we have these KPIs to hit. We have these OKRs to hit. I'm back to being a manager. Did you have a good weekend? And you actually listen to what that person says about their weekend. Do you know the dog's names? You know, this is, there's so many easy tricks to do as well to get your team right and understand them. And that's why we kind of made that blend with Lupin where let's ask how an employee feels as opposed to what they think. You know, what do you think of the company? Oh, we think this is not working. Okay, cool. We've heard you. And then nothing really ever happens. So then they're going to give you less data and then they get to that rut of survey fatigue and all that stuff. Or if you just ask people how they are and how we then begin to advance that technology to use that data to knowing how people are is the first thing you basically do on a Monday. Mm. Hey, how are you? Good weekend. Or if you bump into someone, as we've just greeted each other then, how are you? You're okay? Yeah. You're asking someone's welfare before you ask anything else. And then you get into the the job of it. And that's what we're really encouraging more and more people to do is share how you are. You can be anonymous. You don't have to check in, but let's promote it. Let's share how you are. And then we use that data in a way that it actually helps elevate that leader's or that manager's leadership. So they become more effective within their role. And everyone wants it. Everyone wants to be like that. Um, And I'm pretty pretty psyched for how far we can take it i think where do you think you can take it well depends what vc i'm talking to on the day (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) i think we're in the very early stages and the product won't look how it looks in another year or even six months is it still on slack yeah still on slack Slack. yeah but we'll be moving to teams soon as well interesting and then then google we're even eyeing up whatsapp but there might really? be complications around WhatsApp. Mm. Um, Discord would be a good one. Yeah. So, but you, basically, using all the communication tools within companies. Yeah. And predominantly, the big two are, well, big three is Discord, um, Slack, and Teams. I don't think we'll ever go solely native because actually, if you want engagement in your product, it's quite good to be embedded into where, especially a product like ours, be embedded where people are. There's no point in trying to change behaviors. No. Another login, another password, another piece of security is just another email to open to answer. It's not worth it. So we'll stay in the integration space, but it's what we begin to do with the data. And we're just bringing in a viral part of the product now where people can begin to share basically their top tips, what's worked for them in the week, where, you know, the support, the team. You can't really post negative stuff, so you can only really post positive stuff, but like you would your Strava or your Spotify wrap-up, how people share that, and how we can get people to promote that into LinkedIn and Twitter ecosystems to say, oh, I found this hack with my team. So hopefully we'll hack a bit of a lead generation Hmm. part there. Um, I think every, every founder sits there and thinks it could be a unicorn, 
you know, everyone wants their company to be. I mean, if you're big. sitting in front of VCs, you kind of have to say that you you want to be a unicorn. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, with Luna, it, VCs typically look at the the market, the training market. Mm. Yeah, it's worth just short of four billion now. Mm. In the grand scheme of pet care, which is worth ninety four billion. 92 billion mm. that's a very small tam and that's what sets alarm bells off mm. however it's where do you go with the product where are you going with the vision and i mean for luna we don't want to be selling software to dog trainers all day long that is just the start of the kind of supply and demand mechanism within a marketplace for us but yeah. um yeah vcs uh Oh, your time's not big enough. Uh, well, yes, appreciate that. Yeah, but equally, we don't really be selling software to dog trainers all the time. Yeah. Um, that's not where we want to go with this. I think that's, you know, I was saying to you before this podcast, speaking to a VC today, a very respected group of VCs, um, about getting that vision piece right of what what do you believe your dent is as a company? It's actually, I think every founder's different it's actually quite difficult to sort of be like, it's going to be that. Because you know it's going to change so much over time. But I think what you're saying there is actually more of an important vision to be like, well, we don't want to be just building software for dog trainers all our lives. What we want to do is go and grab this part of the market. And I think that's where we see ourselves. You know, the leadership training, although it sounds, leadership's always been a bit of a dry subject, but it's turning because people are realising that leadership is more than just pointing people in the right direction. It's it encompasses the well-being, the engagement, and all those other future of work parts that we're now looking at. Um, it's over half a trillion. It's re- it's a ridiculously sized market. Yeah, even if you take point two of that market, you've yeah, you've you, you've, you've done got all right. a very very strong business there. Yeah, and I think that's where we see the opportunity, and especially in a market where I know there'll be. There'll be leadership coaches which listen to this podcast and it almost sounds like you're trying to put people out of work, but it's actually the flip side to that. What we want to do is never see that training go away, but how can we make that training more valuable to a company? Because what happens is training comes in, people do a great job, often than not, um, and people go, wow, what an inspiring speaker or a great workshop, because I've been there, I've done these things and I've delivered them. And um, then you go and then, Three days later, they're like, oh, what was that guy's name? And something about empathy. And then mm. two weeks later, it's gone. How do you take that workshop, which is really impactful, and keep that consistency from that workshop to the next course? Yeah. And make basically what is executive leadership more accessible to everyone. All of a sudden, you're changing a the game there. And you're making things very different. And if you can then bring that social element into it, so people can share on LinkedIn or Twitter or their comments in between one another in just the loop and feed, then you're creating a different ecosystem. And I think that's where we believe we sit and lots will happen there. You know, it's not just going to be a bot check-in. It's going to be, we want to be linking to other such products as Calm, you know, or Headspace, um, SurveyMonkey. When's the right time to ask your people something? Or oh, we can work it out through the data the most engaged and most positive at this time. So now's the time to ask it, you know, and, and helping other products deploy their value proposition through ours. So that's ultimately where we want to be. But 
yeah, I think when you're on the journey and you're speaking to investors, founders and customers, it's it's easy for it to become quite blurry. You were talking about vision and earlier and how it, it kind of it changes. It definitely does. I mean, my vision for the business has changed four times, but what hasn't changed is my mission. Mm. My mission being I want to help or we want to help millions of dogs their owners and their trainers live happier healthier lives yeah and it's actually that mission which never wavers yeah but the vision it's almost like having a purpose as a founder right like i always you're as human beings you're kind of you're taught throughout your teens growing up find your purpose find Mm. your purpose Mm. it is huge yeah but it changes yeah purpose changes you don't need to find a purpose yeah what you need to do is find a framework that helps you find a purpose for that period of time yeah i think purpose is almost um i look at more like chapters Mm. and you'll reach the end of a chapter and you'll know you're at a point where you're like "Mm, i need something new and that's then when you're beginning to lack that purpose in your life where you step forward and you go on to chapter three, chapter four, and you keep writing a book. Um, I think there's too much searching for what is my purpose. I actually just listened to Stephen's podcast this morning with Simon Sinek on it. And he's talking about literally what you said there, where, you know, we chase this, where's my why, where's my purpose? And it's, it's, and he makes the point it's, it's ever evolving the place where people get stuck is I've still not found it. Actually, you probably had it. You probably had it at a point, you know, we all have a purpose as a kid, just running around with sticks, basically just shouting at stuff and being annoying for our parents. Maybe that's the purpose, uh, but very simple purpose. And then you move through school and then it all begins to change. And God, it's probably harder to grow up now than it was even when I was at school. Far harder. I mean, the advent, the advent of social, I now, I deleted Instagram and Twitter mm. purely because well, I deleted Instagram first because Inst- Instagram is the absolute killer of my mental health. Yeah, it's pretty toxic. Um, it's not even that. As founders, you sacrifice so much mm. and invariably people don't understand because they're not founders. Yeah. And therefore when you can't go out on the piss on a Saturday night or you can't go to the pub or you just need to be in tip-top condition yeah mentally yeah and physically you sacrifice that yeah I think I I, Instagram's a funny one isn't it I um I still use it but I don't use it how I used to use it and I'm now starting to see almost the Facebook coming into Instagram you can really see it now Mm. a with advertising but b with um just people, the way they gloat, mm. position themselves. Yeah. You know, it's a classic. Your life's not like that. And it's, you know, the Marines are our strongest uh, value is integrity. And I think even Instagram's very good at almost even you, myself, lacking a bit of integrity to portray yourself in a certain way. Yeah. And then it's just like, why? Yeah. Why are you doing that? And who are we even selling to on Instagram? Like, who? who is, I, I just don't. I don't know why I even still use it myself. I'm probably going to have a, a moment outside and get rid of it. <laughs> Just throw my phone across the street. Yeah, yeah. Lob it on the underground. Um, but what value does it really bring? And yeah, it's a, the Instagram debate's a really interesting one. And I think 
the whole way social media has gone for founders a very difficult thing. You're almost encouraged to use it to elevate your You're offering. Bit, no, but uh, yeah, it's so true. Uh, we now have made a, well, we've made a conscious decision a while ago not just to being so early mm. and we're almost semi-bootstrapping, mm. um, albeit with no revenue. Um, <laughs> That's the best revenue. That's yeah, the yeah, best that, yeah. bootstrap. Yeah, but what's going to bring you the best the biggest ROI yeah. and for us just peppering Instagram it's, it's not for, yeah. for us it's actually building with very small set, set of users and that gets lost because you have to you feel like you have to do everything mm. when actually it's far better I believe to do a few core things very 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 well mm. and cut out all the rest of the noise yeah, did the basics right and everything else is Correct. slightly easier. Yeah. yeah. Um I uh I used to obsess over the meaning of life. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, like this this was one of the things that caused me so much internal pain. Mm. Which was like like what is the meaning of my life? When I was in a fucking hellhole with my mental health and had no purpose after my last business went down down the toilet. Uh, well, actually, it didn't go down the toilet. It's still going. It's a really good business, but I just couldn't take it anymore. Mm. Um, you, you sit there, or I sat there, and I was like, what is the meaning to my life? I, I need to find a meaning to life because, logically speaking, that's you're kind of hanging on to that. Mm. Um and then I realised that actually there was no meaning to life, and that is utterly pointless. I mean, do you see the same? I, I have a an appreciation for life. I think there's a meaning and appreciation are two different things. I've been in some very difficult situations where, you know, bullets can bounce off the wall next to your head, and you go, "Okay, that was fucking close." I remember many occasions going. When I get home, I need to tell people I love them more and, and things like that. Mm. Meaning of a life is a really interesting one. You could go off down a right rabbit hole here. I'm a big I'm a big space nerd. So I'm into the whole where did it all begin? And less around why are we here, but more about what's next. Mm. Um, and I was listening to uh, uh, Russell Brand and Ricky Gervais. Uh, Ricky was on Russell's podcast recently. And... You know, you've got a very spiritual believer there, which is Russell, and then you've got Ricky, who's just an outright atheist. Yeah, yeah. But listening to me quite cohesive and sharing their beliefs and listening to one another and talking about it was really interesting. And um, Ricky just made this great point. I can't remember the quote verbatim, but he said, you haven't got a fucking clue what happened before, and you won't have a fucking clue what happens afterwards. All you know is this 75-bit, 75 years, 85 years in the middle which you're just sort of getting along. You won't remember any of it. And when he put it like that, and I'm a big Gervais fan anyway, but when he put it like that, you just sit there and go, yeah, well, what are we all sort of losing our shit over then? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, well, why are we getting so twisted and wrapped round on certain things where you're like, you know, people say, oh, if you're not going to remember it in five years, don't worry about it right now. Well, like, that's pretty much life because you're not going to remember anything after We've this. We've got 4,000 weeks on Earth. <laughs> That's if you right, live, if, it? if you live to your 80, you've got 4,000 weeks. There we weeks. go. 4,000 weeks. But as a, it's interesting when you make that link to the founder, though, because it all feels so in the moment. 
you know, there's a lot of emotion, there's a lot riding on it that every little thing can feel quite painful when it's going wrong and the mm. stress is there. And, and then you end up questioning, like, what's the fucking point? You know, why am I doing this? What's the meaning of life? And those things begin to do, I do believe they come out. I think they come out in in the storm as opposed to the calm. You know, yes. when it's when it's easy and figures are going up and you see users, it's like, oh, the meaning of life is probably this. Yeah, yeah. The moment it all hits the fan, you're like, this is definitely not the meaning no, of no. life. We're uh, in real, real yeah. trouble here. Let get me my, run on wall. Get my R&D tax claim in. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, again, like going back to a conversation I was having earlier with this, one of the VCs, a really different guy, you know, I've, I've done some of the ones with the investment bankers and then the kind of rock and roll ones as well. And I, really? I, Have you, what, you've sat, really? In your no, so like investment cycle, ex-investment bankers. Oh, right. Now working at some say, of the firms. That's really rogue going to try and raise from like Goldman. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, no. Slash impossible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, whoever's advised you to do that, you've been <laughs> yeah. reading Somehow the you walk out the yeah. meeting owing them money. Yeah, you've yeah. been reading the wrong Medium article. That is definitely not happening. But... Yeah, but like the more rock and roll guys that they come across and they have a different perspective to maybe the, the ones which come from investment banking and gone into venture. And it's, it's interesting, the conversations. Um, and the conversation I was having earlier was alluding to that point of we chose this life. We chose to be founders. So remember that, you know, you took on this venture and you have to stay you almost have to remind yourself of that on a daily basis that I, I've chosen to put us in this position. And I do that. I do that very openly with my family. You know, my wife chucked in her job so she could support me. Both the kids are at school. We have a mortgage. Aunt has the same. And it's very easy to sit there, I think, and feel fucking sorry for yourself sometimes when it's all going wrong. Sorry. How do you deal with the, that pressure? Because that immediately came to my mind. Your wife, as Aunt's wife as well, thrown mm. in the towel with her job as well thrown in the towel what am i saying um has so they've they've left their jobs yeah. to support your children and whilst venture, you yeah. yeah and your venture yeah do you feel overwhelming pressure or how, how what's your relationship like with pressure regarding your family situation and the reliance on you hey can i ask a massive favor can you subscribe to this podcast right now, if you haven't already? Your subscribes, your sharing, your liking, your commenting all over social media is increasing our reach. And it's meaning that founders out there know it's okay to talk about their mental health. Thank you. So I wanted to give a massive shout out to our sponsors, Founders Taboo, the headspace for founders. Founders Taboo are building the world's largest free online course and community for founders' mental health and well-being. The course has been designed in five chapters covering startup-specific pressures, well-being and recovery topics. Therefore, whether you are a founder, you're an investor, you're an employee, you're a family member or anyone with an interest in founder mental health and well-being, this is for you. They want to make it super easy for founders and the people around them to learn about founder mental health and well-being in the startup ecosystem. If you want to go check them out, go to www.founderstaboo.com. Yeah, I think the pressure's, um, again, it's quite 
I, I do sort of look back at my military career and go, well, so no one's trying to kill me for a start. Mm. Um, I think what the military does, though, is it institutionalizes you. So you know you're getting definitely paid at the end of the month. And you if you run out of food, you can just go and get food. Um, there's always a roof. You know, even when you're a married couple with kids, you've got marriage quarters and it's is it, lifestyle is easier. Um, dentist, gym, all that stuff. So when you come out, you haven't got any of that for a start. And you have to kind of pave your way a little bit. So the, the military does make you a little bit comfortable in that sense. I think with the pressure side of it, again, I brought this up this morning, was in combat, it's up and down. It's like something happens, very stressful event, then it comes back down and then you chill. And then the next day something else will happen and it's just that kind of roller coaster. I think as a founder, it's like this consistent pressure line where you're always on, you're always thinking, mm. you're never switched off. Mm. And that then has an impact on your like adrenal responses. You know, you're constantly like moving, for some of us, not everyone, but always moving cortisol around, always moving adrenaline. You're kind of always switched on. And when I first started the venture, my fucking blood pressure was through the roof. Really? Mm. And I was super stressed. Like I could really feel it. I was wearing the pressure. And then I think what made it easier was not like, not the attitude of, oh, well, if this all goes wrong, what could happen next? But it was just realizing my value. And that my value is 100% committed to looping and will always work to try and make it better. But if something devastating happened and it all went wrong, I know my value. So I know I could walk into another job and probably do quite well. I have a great network of people that I could lean on and say, I'm out of work because I dare to take on some something very few dare to take on, which is setting up your own business. And I know I'd get work and I'd probably get probably a better salary than I'm on now. <laughs> Without a doubt. <laughs> to offer value to another company. Uh, and interestingly, my wife and I were talking about this the other day and she, she was like, you'd last five minutes before you were like, mm. right, what's next? Yeah. And I, I Same even, as me. Ex yeah. And like, well, you, you've got more business under your belt. You, you've been through more highs and lows in startup world than probably Ant and I have. But we all know the value you could go and take on and put to another business. And I think actually the pressure for me genuinely is like, okay, so this did go wrong. What's that two month period? How am I going to bring money into the house in that two month period between it going wrong and getting that new job? Mm. And how that's the only bit that really bothers really, me. Really? That's interesting. Yeah, that's the only bit that really gets me. The rest of it, you just figure it out. Mm. You just figure it out. And again, you know, using the Marines. And I know you want to talk about some of this and it might be a good place to start. One of our, our ethos is to adapt and overcome, you know. Um, and this is where ARA comes in. ARA is about dealing with adversity. Um, accept, accept the situations happen, remove unwanted emotion and adapt to the situation. Yeah. So that's kind of my Which like, sounds framework. fantastic. But when you started, you, when you came up with that framework, it was literally... Yeah. On... Yeah. One of the worst states. Yeah, sat in the bog and you're like, well, yeah. Jesus wept. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, it, it, I think you match it with a, adapt and overcome and then you realise that's what's ingrained in you and you realise where that's happened as well. Like, So the day I realised ARA was when one of my mates was killed, but he was killed five minutes into an op, which was 24 hours long. 
and he was maimed, you know, killed in a horrific way, standing on a bomb, blown to pieces. But you still got to get on with the operation. And it's very easy to sit back and feel emotional and you suffer with the pain of everyone else and two other people are injured in the situation. It was just a fuck up from the start. But you still got a mission to achieve. And just because you've lost someone does not mean the mission stops. You have to carry on and you have to work out how do I, how do we as a troop fulfill his role to ensure that we don't feel like a man down? And where do we need to close the gap in our positioning? And, and all these things that probably people don't realize you do to ensure that you have the most devastating effect still on the enemy, which we did that day. We could have quite easily gone, because I remember the RAF said, we can come back and get you. And the boss was like, no, we're going in. And that was, and that's the Marine's attitude. It's like, okay, he's dead, adapt, overcome. Right, this is what we're going to do now, guys. And the mission was on the worst foot to start off with. Five minutes in, and we've lost a guy. It was just, how, did, how did that happen? How did he die? Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean how, how, did, how did the mission unfold? So... We were tasked to, so there was a village, um, I'm going to give some context. So I was in a, uh, a company called Lima Company and we were strike ops. So out of the four companies at 4-2, so you got MJK and L, like all mixed up there, um, had different taskings and we took the strike ops role, which is quite a cool role to get. It is on the helos, fly in, cover of night go in, massively scrap out the enemy and then extract. And that was it. Um, that's why they called strike ops. And then and in between that, we would be going around and we'd ha occupy a lot of the fobs and the bases and, you know, still doing our normal day-to-day -day jobs as well. And we'd already been on a task in two days before that, three days before that, which went successfully, i.e. no one got injured or killed and we took out some of the enemy. Um, and then this tasking came through to go into a village that was um, confirmed to be Taliban occupied. And they, what the, I'm getting all foundry now, I was going to say what the data suggested, what the intelligence buildup of that area said was that the Taliban were using it to basically make bombs, homemade bombs, cage weapons, tactical training, and then push out north or south to fight either 4-2 or 4-5, um, which was the commander units there at the time. So we were tasked to go in and what we, what intelligence knew was that they were only going in from the, they were only entering and exiting the northeast part of the village and then the southwest. And then people were going up to the tree lines at night and at morning, just going up to the tree line and then coming away from it. So what it suggested was the whole place was surrounded by linked bombs dug into the ditches. And then people were going up, turning them on and off at night and at dawn. And then they were only exiting the villages at these safe points. So we knew that we had to only, we could only enter in two places. And the top part, which is the northeast, was heavily occupied. It would be literally landing in their garden, which would have, it sounds like the best thing to do, but it would have been a fucking nightmare. Um, the option we took was to come in at the southwest break into the bottom village of com or cluster of compounds and then begin to push through as we sort of checked all the compounds off for what they were making. Um, the, and how the op was meant to go was both the helos, two Chinooks were meant to land in the same field, uh, the troops would exfil and then would enter. And what unfortunately happened was one Chinook landed in the wrong field 
Um, and we knew they were cut off. So, and this is at night. So there was a bit of a, almost pain in the sense of, oh, the guys are in the wrong field already and we're meant to all be in this field in order to go in. And you now I talk a lot about communication with my team, talk about a lot about decision-making. Uh, and also when you cut corners, things go very wrong in that world I used to live in. No one cut a corner, not from the Marines level anyway, but who we got a lift in with, which is the Chinooks, the RAF. Somewhere communication went wrong and the the helos landed in the wrong field. So the decision was made that, right, that troop, eight troop, um, was to get to us, which was seven troop, which was my troop. Um, we would reorganize in the field that we were already in and then would break in. So we were waiting five minutes as they were starting to make their way through and then this massive explosion went off and then the screaming began and then the all the names started coming through on the radio that someone had stepped on something and you've got probably in that moment in that moment like what is going through your mind your shoulders drop i remember my shoulders dropping and just looking at the ground and it was night time, so I was, I was looking through my night vision. And you do switch off very quickly, look around and just think, fuck. And then you kind of, I remember my mouth being, it's funny things you remember, a very sort mm. of um, vivid vi uh, memory of just my mouth was open. Not in shock, but almost trying to listen. It was a really weird thing, like trying to take in the sound. Because they were about 100, maybe 150 meters to our right. So you could you could hear things going on but it was still sort of muffled. And then I, and I remember these thoughts coming through before the names started coming through on the radio, thinking, well, if they didn't he hear those helicopters land, they definitely know we're here now. Mm. And they definitely know we're on the back foot because the explosion's gone off. And so you, you're sort of pent waiting for the incoming fire. And then intelligence started coming through because we had drones in the sky saying there's movement in the village now. So we know they're trying to take up positions. And then I remember looking at the field right in front of me thinking, where's the next bomb? Mm. Where, where's the next one? Who's going to be next? Is it me? Really switching off. You know, you're not switching on to the moment. You're switching off going, fuck, am I safe? Are my mates all right? You know, the things that, of course, every human is going to be thinking, but the soldiers should be like, right, fuck. We're the enemy. What's the likely firing point going to be from if they have heard that and they're going to come at us? There is going to be bombs in front of us. Where is it most likely to be? And you're around great leadership. And I remember my Corporal Vice, who I speak highly of um, on those operations, was next to me and he was listening. And I asked him, I was like, who is it? And he he's like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> Sorry, clear my throat. Uh, he's like, shut the fuck up. I'm listening to my radio. I was like, okay, I'm trying to listen to his radio basically through the air. And uh, and then the name started coming through. Um, and it was Dino, Spoonie, and Runners. And you just, you just stop. You can't do anything but stop. And I was playing Call of Duty with uh, Dino 12 hours before that moment. Because we lived out on the front line, but to do this operation, we went back to Camp Bastion and Camp Bastion was extremely well equipped. And there was cafes with PlayStations in there and, you know, you could slightly make it feel like home. And he was, I think he was rated as like 
top five in Europe on Call of Duty. So he's just kicking everyone's ass and wow. just annoying everyone as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but a great guy. And yeah, and you hear the names come through, but no real detail of the injuries or what's happened. And then, and then this is where I believe ARA comes in is accepting removing the unwanted motion and adapting to the situation, which I think comes from leadership first. Because mm. it's you could easily sit there and be a young Marine going, oh, we're on the back foot here. You know, I feel sad that people have been hurt. And Vice got the command from our boss who was on the ground. was like, we're going in. Get yourselves ready, lads. And then it's like a light bulb. It clicks. You're like, okay, whatever's happened in that tree line, we're going into that village. Yeah. And then we moved very quickly through the field, I wouldn't say fearlessly. You're constantly like, where's the next one? But you just think, fuck it, I get on with my job. And then the assault engineers put the uh, explosives on the walls and blew the wall to pieces and then we were into the village. And within five minutes, if that, we're up on the roofs and the Taliban were trying to get into the village, that we, that part of the village that we were trying to get into. They were basically trying to beat us to it. And we got on the roofs and they hadn't beaten us to it. They were still running across the open ground and they were just a couple of them were in front of us on the other side of the wall and that's where the sort of you lose your combat virginity quite quickly I was just thinking as you were saying that how many people do you know in in your time in the military in your experience who have actually their first thought is not the human side of life the first thought is job first all of them once they've been through that moment really yeah so i think royal marines train i i only talk i can't talk for the military i only talk for the royal marines because that's where i'm from but i know a lot how a lot of the infantry function and how their training is quite similar to ours you're taught Again and again, and inoculation, you know, under stress, under pressure, but it's never real. It's as close to real as possible with they'll use live ammunition, they'll fire it over your heads. Great ranges to be part of. I love doing those types of shoots. Um, and that feels great, but it's never real. And we talk a lot. I used to coach this a lot as well about exposure equals composure. You know, how can I get more from my team or how can I teach them to be resilient? You can't teach them to be resilient. You have to build resilience. And resilience comes from exposing people to situations and then empowering them to be more composed the next time it happens. So stepping out of your comfort zone into this fear zone where most people go and then guiding that person through either the the passings the successes or the failures so they learn from it as opposed to i fucked that up that mm. was shit and i'm just getting terrible feedback and i'm just going to go and be a recluse in my comfort zone again you actually empower people to understand that no matter if you failed or succeeded you've learned something and allow that learning to help you grow and so in a combat way situation Every time that sort of first round snapped over your head or a bomb went off, you know, it was another moment of, okay, this is where I, I'm at in my thinking. This is my adrenal response. This is the stress. I need to do my job. I need to think with clarity. And you get there quicker. The first time it happens, for me personally, and I, I know a lot of guys like rabbits in headlights, someone's trying to kill us. Didn't realize it was real. To then you get into more and more 
bumps and scrapes with the enemy and you become more composed in the situation. Because in essence, what you're actually doing is retraining your entire neural linkage functioning, mm. neural link functioning within your brain. Yeah. Because obviously, as human beings, fight or flight comes from the limbic system. Yeah. What you really, really need is to completely suppress that function and start thinking prefrontal cortex yeah. instead. Yeah. All you need is oxygen. Which is f in terms of breathing. Yeah. Really. Yeah. It, it, again, we're, this is something that we're taught regularly in the military. We call it a condor moment. A condor moment's actually linked to the old smoking advert many years ago, both before both of our time, where the, everything's falling apart around him and then he takes a cigarette out and he has his five minutes of peace. Um, I'd love that. Yeah, it'd be good. I'm still searching for my condor mm. moment. And we, um, you're taught to breathe. You're literally... Even under fire, you return fire, you take cover, and then you return accurate fire. And then as a commander, you have to assess the situation. Now, you can't assess the situation fully. If you're fully in the fight, getting the rounds down with the rest of the lads and not concentrating, you have to break yourself away from the combat to assess. And you you know, you know, move up your line of troops or you're looking around for if you're going to go right or you're going to go straight down the middle. How are you going to do this? You're going backwards, what, whatever. And you're taught to take a breath and a big breath and then another big breath and then try and concentrate on the task because the human's reaction is to stressful event takes place <laughs> yeah. and they go into that sort of panic mode. What happens is you're, you're taking in less oxygen, you're breathing really quickly so you end up begin to hyperventilate and you're listening to this, this sort of um, your body's response and getting caught too caught up in that body's response which then changes your psychological state how we and i've had the luxury of being taught and then teaching guys this is you're trying we're not neuroscientists but everyone's got a brain so you can talk about the brain once you've worked out how to use it what you want to be doing in high pressured situations is connecting the neuro pathways as you said from your limbic system to your neocortex and especially your prefrontal cortex where you can do logical thinking you can do problem solving and you do rational response as opposed to limbic thinking which is emotional and caught up in it again going back to ara you know accepting the situation has happened but removing unwanted emotion you know removing unwanted emotion in the heat of battle is is not my friends being killed over there. Let's go in and tear the village to pieces. And no matter who's got a weapon or not, they're going to get it. That That's anger. That's sadness. That's raw emotion, which clouds judgment. And you can't focus on doing your job properly. It's like shit happens. We all signed the line. You know, we all agreed to be here. Let's go and do our job. I, th I think the, the only problem there being, and this is just coming from me exploring this, is how do you actually do that? Mm. Because it's very easy for people to sit here and say, yeah, well, in fact, it's very easy for you to sit here mm. and say, um, yeah, remove the unwanted emotion and off we go. Yeah. But if I was listening to this, I'd be like, how the fuck do you do that? Yeah, it takes that, time. Yeah. But what is the process to do that? Again, this comes down to that building of resilience. It's exposure equals composure it's being in the situations that do and and actually yeah go back a point so I'm, i would never sit here and be when the situation occurs be emotionless that's the wrong thing to happen when you begin to end up like that 
then you are in an uncharted territory of probably becoming a psychopath. You know, if you have no emotion to the situation whatsoever, there's you probably want to chat to someone. I say unwanted emotion because you've got to look at unwanted emotion as what is clouding my judgment right now? Okay, and that's the bit that everyone, when an event takes place, you have to try and see through and it's down to you to see through it. So in the heat of battle, you have to see through the emotion, the unwanted emotion that's going to cause you to do something you're probably going to regret later down the line. People will be listening going, how the hell do I apply that to my life? Like you said, well, there'll be founders listening going, how many no's and rejections have you had from VCs that have made you feel emotional? Like the quicker you can get to that point of going, yeah, okay, cheers and moving on. Yeah. And get into the next conversation and it's a no from, yeah, cheers. And you even read, they got these wonderful no emails, which we all receive. We really enjoyed meeting you the other day. And as soon as you read, I really enjoyed meeting you. Yeah. You You don't even read the rest. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think even Ant and I, you know, I'm hopefully talking with empathy for listeners is we went through that initial stage of like, they've said, no, why don't they believe in our baby? You know? Or emotional to oh feel sorry for me. When then you have to practice the art of no. Okay, cool. No. Okay, cool. You know, and they do stack up. This is the this is the world we are all in. Um and then one will say yes and you and then you don't get emotional about that. You just go, awesome, put you in that pile over there. Um, oh we got this meeting with this person. Awesome, put them there. Uh, these people said no. Okay, cool. We'll leave them to next time. And take it's really hard to get to that point. But you have to get to that point because I think when too much emotional thinking is involved in what you're doing, your decision making does shift. I'll just keep changing the deck or I'll change my whole value proposition or I'm going to say something that they want to hear and I just need it on my hands and knees praying. Um, we That goes through our thoughts all the time, but I think the most successful just draw out that emotion, that unwanted emotion that they don't need at that time. I'm just going to have to think with clarity during the situation. And yeah, I I come from the military. I spent 10 years between 2008, 2018, 19-ish. And during the height of the Afghan wars, all all of that stuff. And I've had the privilege of kind of practicing this, ready for this journey. But even still, it fucks with you. (laughs) And it's still very difficult to practice. Um, And there's a lot there. And actually, you know, Maybe two weeks in Sangin would be a bit of R&R right now, ironically. Um, but I personally wouldn't change this for the world. I think this problem solving, this pressure, this stress is the closest you can get to combat without someone trying to kill you. Really? Or hurt you. Yeah, because you're under that continuous living, breathing, thinking about it. And what about that process you, do you love? Because I'm I'm thinking back at... To what you've witnessed in the Marines um, in particular, and I'd love to quickly get, well, not quickly, because f- who cares how long we're here for. Um, uh, I know you've got something a bit later, but um, how you got discharged from the Marines is kind of tinged with, um, well, it's not sad because nobody died, but there was a lot of people who got injured from that event, mm. right? And a lot of people whose lives have whose lives have changed beyond recognition mm. because of that. Mm. Which you would 
think, okay, why the, on earth would he want to do that again, being a founder? But that story is is wild. What, when we all got blown up? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I can share it. So again, combat situation. It, annoyingly, it was the last few weeks of an operational tour as well. Like you've got really? through it. And there was a guy I went to school with, still very good friends with. I can't say his name because he does some quite secretive stuff now. Good, good legal secretive stuff, but secretive yeah, yeah. stuff. And um, he he was the one who convinced me to join the Marines when I was right off the rails, having a very bad time. And he was like, you could come this direction. And I kind of fobbed it off. Uh, and he was halfway through training, I think, at the time. And then, um, and I was in awe of him. I had full respect for him, but I just couldn't pull my head out of my ass. And then, yeah, I had my very, very bad day and then saw the Marines advert. I was like, hmm, okay, I'll go join up. Um, I actually met up with him and we didn't, never worked together in the Marines. And then we, then he was at Camp Bastion when I was ready to deploy in another operation. I was like, oh, I'll come and find you. And I think by that point, I was so mentally fucked. Like I was just fatigued. I was just tired. I wanted to go home. Most of the troop wanted to go home. And, and it is operational fatigue. You get to that point where you're like, you've just seen one too many people get killed or injured. You're pretty up to the eyeballs of the Taliban. And I got a lot of respect for the Taliban. I think they're, they're very good at what they do. They're difficult to fight. Um, and I met up with him and, and at Camp Bastion, we grabbed a coffee and I said to him, Oh, mate, because he had a different roles. I wouldn't say easier, but they were doing slightly less kinetic things. Um, and uh, I was like, oh, I'm ready to go home, mate. And he was like, yeah, same here. I was like, do you know what? And I, I remember saying it verbatim. I was like, I'd happily take one through the calf and just get on the, get on the plane now. I think most of the lads would. And he was like, oh, don't joke like that. I'm like, no. Yeah, you, you. it's sort of gallows humour. Everyone jokes in that way. I was like, I'll take one for the calf. I'll take one for the team and go home. And then your, we... Your poor calf. Yeah, my poor calf. The irony in this bit. I know. So then we deployed on the operation and within moments, we're sort of... Well, within a couple of hours, sorry, we're scrapping the Taliban. We were, we were meant to be there seven, eight days, I think it was. Um and they were throwing grenades over the wall. They were getting close enough for that. We five or six people injured within the first four or five hours. And then we had no mortarman. And that's where Vicey won his MC. It's military cross for calling in mortar fire without a mortarman, untrained. And that part, you're like looking at the sky going, I hope he's put the right grid reference in here. And the Taliban was sort of coming from four different angles. And it was just hard work. But it was a full-on day of scrapping. And then the next morning, we went out on a very early patrol and I was third man and came out of a bush, out of a cornfield and we stopped on the track and there was just no one around. We call it atmospherics. So if it's got really high atmospherics, it means there's lots of people around, there's a buzz, there's probably little chance the Taliban are in town. Literally, it was a ghost town and came out and sort of peered onto the track and thought the rest of the team are, are in this cornfield all the way in a sort of snake and I was, at, I was at the front with Jordan and the dog handler and it was it just felt eerie like really eerie 
and your spider senses started coming up on the neck and it's like something's not right here and I turned around to Vicey and he sort of peered on the track and he was like push up which we had to do because we were going to go into sort of I think we were clearing a compound at the time and we pushed up and then this tractor comes across in front of us and we just right in front of us and we looked because it was at a cross junction we looked at the, the guy on the tractor and he floors it as fast as you can floor a tractor. So he kind of just picked up general speed and he went. And then I looked at Ficey again. And I remember constantly looking at him almost for like reassurance. Like, I think deep down, I was like, we're going to get fucked here. I just need to look at someone who's just going to look me in the eyes and go, we're not going to get fucked. So I kind of look at him through puppy eyes and we take a knee and we stop again right on the junction. And then these two guys walk out dressed in full black with trainers on. And this was a telltale sign of the Taliban. Most people out there wore sandals. The Taliban wore trainers, so they could obviously sprint around and run around easier. And they they were here, like from where you and I are, just like stood right in front of us. And I remember this, like, we've all, not all maybe, but most people have been in an altercation down a town or a night out or with someone they know. You get that massive sort of adrenaline rush as you know something's about to happen. And I remember it like surging through me, but almost feeling completely powerless because do, do you grab them? Do you punch them? Do you hit them? Do you shoot them? You know, you're not trained to do that. You're trained to do your job. And they had no weapons on them. And the the course of action we would take is stop them, lift up your tops so you know you've not got a suicide vest on or any weapons, and then we'll take them in. They know that as well. Stopped literally from you to me. And as I've gone to like open my mouth, they've just bolted like rapid down the street. And there's no way you're chasing them in your hundred pound weighting kit and your rifle and all that stuff. Not allowed to shoot them. No, don't shoot them in the back. Can't shoot them. They've got no weapons. You just don't shoot them. And, and you just knew straight away, like this is going to go wrong. We need cover watched them run down this track and then they cut into the field to our right and just saw them run in there and then you could hear them running through the crops and I turned to Vicey and he was like, what are we doing? And he was like, run. Because he knew. And then took three steps, four steps and then the wall exploded to our right and wiped out the whole section. And I I remember, because I'd run, you know, Taliban's preferred method was a pressure plate which they'd dig into the ground that you would stand on with the with the trigger for the bombs uh, on, on an IED, and that's where most guys were losing their arms and girls were losing arms and legs and being killed was because the explosion was happening underneath. And I ran. The bomb went off, and it's just this cloud of dust all in your mouth. Your hearing's gone. Everything's just going. Nee! And I I was lying on the floor, and I was instantly in pain. I remember standing through the blast. So the blast went through. And I remember staying stood up, not in a hero way. It just, it didn't have the power to knock me off my feet because I think the way I was stood to the wall, the, the power actually went into the team. And I stood there, but it went through me. You know, I felt things hit me and something hit me on the back of the head. And I know my helmet took a big chunk of frag um, metal. So luckily I was wearing my helmet. And then my calf was on fire and I and, and I just sort of slumped to the floor and then it kind of, blurred out blurred back in and then I looked down as the as the dust was starting to clear a bit I had my right leg out 
and then I couldn't see my left leg. All I could see was my knee and my, my leg was in so much pain and I had all the burns down the right-hand side, what's called flash burns. And then I just thought, fuck, it's me. I've stood on an IED and I've blown my leg off because I'm looking at basically a stump, which was my knee, but there was no blood and just really disorientated. And I had the, had the dog handler's dog next to me who was just sat there looking at me. And I obviously just looked at him and, well, you're fucking shit for a start because he's just not done his job. Ironically, I'll, I'll come on to it afterwards, but I actually bumped into the dog handler years later, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, but that's another story. But the dog's looking at me and I'm looking at the dog going, you're shit at your job, but probably not in that humorous way, literally shouting at the thing like, what the fuck? Um, I love dogs. I'm a massive dog fan, massive animal fan. But um, And I love that dog, but on that particular day, it wasn't in the best books. And uh, and then I just remember thinking, fuck my leg. And like looking around for it, like, where's that gone? And then the, the shock allows you to think in that way. And then it just, I just caught a glimpse of some blood on my trousers. And then I started to move my leg forward. And I, it turns out I was just sat on my leg. Um, and I had taken one through the calf, like the this the frag had gone through my left leg, gone through my calf. And I looked down and there's a hole in my leg. I was like, oh, well, that's lucky. And then I turned around and the whole, like an image that will never leave me, like the whole team were on the floor, bleeding, dying. The, some of them had the most horrific injuries. And I don't know what came over. I, I remember just thinking my legs fucking killing me here i could lie here and feel sorry for myself again you adapt to a situation and then i turned around to see vice in vice who was completely unconscious and then i just saw out the corner of my eye not to be graphic but his neck was not leaking it was spraying and and your training just kicks in again i was like that's an arterial bleed i need to get to him and started crawling over there and as i was crawling to him richie starts running up the track who survived the blast uh, and just jumped on his neck basically and then I then we're kind of trying to patch him up together to bring him back round and unfortunately he made it um, and bless Vicky our medics running up and down I think we had seven casualties and she's and it, it's like to the point that it, you can't make it up you, you're treating yourself because there's no one to treat you she's like throwing bandages across like just get that on your leg and then trying to wrap tourniquets onto people and just carnage and then, um, and then we were sort of we managed to all get dragged and put onto stretchers and put into this. There was hardly anyone to, to deal with the casualties. The other section came out to help out. And then the, the Apache A10 came in, which is our eyes and ears, which makes the Taliban shit themselves. They found them hiding in a tree line, which was just next to us. So then the Apaches opening up over our heads onto the tree line, annihilating whoever was in there. And just sat there thinking, fucking hell, this is it. This is it. This is going very, very wrong right now because you've got no one as protection. Pretty much the team's been smashed up. And then I think it felt like five minutes, but all it was probably, I think it was about an hour later, 45 minutes to an hour, they managed to get the Merton, which is the, the medical helicopter. And that came in. 
We all got piled on. I remember, I remember sort of limping past my sergeant. I had all the bandages hanging off my left leg and I had blood coming out my ear and stuff. And then he stopped me. He was like, where the fuck are you going? I was like, I've been hit. And he was like, have you? It's like, yeah. <laughs> he was like, oh, another one. He was like, get on the chopper. Uh, um, and then got on the, got on the helo. And then I was the last one to get on the helo. <laughs> where the fuck are you going? <laughs> yeah. At that point, you're like, oh no. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I was thinking, surely don't make me work any longer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going home, mate. And, um, and yeah, and it got, everyone got on all the stretcher on the medical team were dealing with the severe casualties. Um, and yeah, I remember I, re- I got really emotional as well. The tail ramp slightly went up and then we lifted off and, and I could still see the guys, the rest, the remaining team on the ground. I could see the blast site where it all happened and they just get smaller and smaller and smaller. And mm. although I remember, you know, two days before I'm sort of saying, I'll take one through the calf to get home. The moment you're on your way home, you, you, I was just like, I need to be on the ground with the guys. Like, I should not be on this helicopter. And they had a fucking savage five days after that as well. Um, and that operation changed every single person, you know, physically and mentally. How did it change you? Oh, for years, I was unable to talk about it, unable to think about it. And I think it's because... Um, you know, no one died. That's the that's the impressive thing about that moment. On that op, we lost, we lost as in totality, um, numbers wise. Twelve people were were injured within the first forty eight hours of the operation. That's quite a staggering amount of people being lost, but no one died. You know, and and um, there was a lot of contact with the enemy, which we know there was a count from those guys. Um, but I just, I was never able to sort of, I never wanted to talk about it. I think it's because I ended up back home so quickly. Within 24 hours, we were in Birmingham. Second operation, guys are in intensive care. Everyone's made it. But within within three days later, Baz Weston was killed out on the ground. And you're like, we're not there. And even though he was in a different company, you just instantly felt helpless and pointless and purposeless. You know, the one job you're trained to do, you're not out there doing, whilst the rest of your team is still there. I think that was the hardest point. And I remember I, I fell out with my mum because they turned up, They turned, and she was in shock. We, we fell out because both were sort of quite emotional. And all my family were around my bed when I sort of, I don't know if I came to or just they were just suddenly there. I didn't want to speak to anyone. I was just like, oh, thanks for coming, cheers. <laughs> like, I want to see my, my fiancé who's now my wife, I was like, I was really wanted to see everyone, but I also didn't. And I just asked everyone to go away um, and leave me to it. And that's because I didn't feel like I earned the right f- to be my family while the guys are still, even on that operation, fighting. And yeah, I think that's where I struggled most. And the bomb went off behind me. You know, the Taliban were there. You could have grabbed them. There's so much you go through where you your hindsight's brilliant. Um, could I have done more? Could could Vicey be less injured what he is now if I got to him quicker? All those things come to mind. It took a long time to get over it. And then that guy, I, I said, that dog handler, who's not a Marine, he was an attached rank, who downloaded Lupin out of the blue, said, oh, were you in the military? Um, so yeah, I got on a video call with him. And he was like, oh, I was, I was attached to 4-2. I was like, oh, I was at 4-2. And, uh, and he said he's a dog handler. I was like, yeah, I remember having a massacre at a dog after a bomb went off. And he was like, where was that? I was like, Lo- uh, where was it? Nadi Alley North. Somewhere in Nadi Alley North. And he, uh, he was like, were you part of Lima Company? I was like, yeah. He was like, 
were you one of the lads who got blown up? I was like, was that your fucking dog? And he was like, yeah. And then we had a chat and it was just amazing. It was surreal. That is unbelievable. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. And then he was like, oh, mate, I've got all the headcam footage of that moment. I was like, have you really? Uh, he's like, yeah, I just didn't think any of you guys would want to see it. And I was like, if you'd asked me five years ago, I wouldn't have want to seen it. Now I'm like, yeah, what can we learn from that? What? That's our making. And it's not a nice making, but it's a chapter in the book it's mm. a chapter in your life um so yeah that well, i'm waiting to receive that but yeah those, those moments forge you into i think someone which maybe can look an investor in the eye and not get so emotional around them and i've been to the battlefields all right that's your decision we'll move on to the next and i think it helps how have you found your mental health shift as you've been a founder like what have you struggled with having literally being blown up by an ID. I think it's I think it's more and maybe this is a better way of framing it. So you can't give up in war. You're there. So you've got no choice. And I remember when we got off the plane, our sergeant within a couple of weeks was just said and and I think he quoted it from Band of Brothers because I've heard him I've heard Captain Spears say in Band of Brothers a few times. And he was like, just accept your dead. Once you accept your dead, everything's a lot easier. And he's like, oh, okay, cool. All right, that's it then. We'll just accept we're dead and we'll crack on. Like maybe not the most logical thing to do. Like I'm dead, go do random stuff. But it what what it allowed you to do was go like, okay, getting home's a luxury. Getting home's a win. You know, the risk of this job is extremely dangerous and we just have to accept that might happen. And then you kind of put that to bed and then you just carry on with your job. So I think that acceptance piece, acceptance piece is there. You know, I, I lived in some bases which just the only way in was by helicopter in the middle of the green zone. You couldn't get any vehicles to it. Um, very limited, especially Toki where we stayed for a while. Uh, lots of activity, very difficult. Not at all my wars worse than anyone else's. It was just that was like everyone else's. But you had to accept it. And you were there, you were in the moment. So you could never give up. Like you can't just go and get on the helicopter. I'm going home now. This is shit. Um, You had no way out, so you just cracked on. I think what I struggle with is actually, it's quite easy to give up as a founder. Like I was saying earlier, like we could all probably walk into great jobs. I've got a brilliant speaking career behind me. I've done some amazing things. I have a book. There's lots of stuff I could do to just probably make more money than I'm making now, but maybe that time will turn and obviously uh, tech is where it's at maybe not in the current market but um that's another story but i think that's not you uh, that's not normal for me to be able to sit there and be like mm, i could give up i could just fucking not do this and go and do something else and i actually find that's become not the biggest challenge because i never would but those thoughts are more common than they may may have been in my military career where like giving up was just not a thing. Now as a founder, like you could, it's easy to get comfortable if you really wanted to. You could just close your laptop and go fuck this, and you're done. I did that earlier actually. <laughs> no seriously. But you'll go and open the laptop back up. No, I didn't. You won't. You quit. No, no, no. I haven't quit. But <laughs> for the day, I got to about half past one, and I was like, I've been doing this since. 5am <laughs> and I just went to sleep 
Did you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's it, was, it like? <laughs> oh, it was amazing. Yeah. Uh, but I have a I have a great team. Yeah. But equally, it got to that stage where I was like, I'm quitting. Yeah. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. I really am because my brain is fried. It, I'm speaking at a leadership conference tomorrow in entrepreneurship. 10,000 students. Wow. For 45 minutes. And I don't have a scooby-doo what I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah, they're the best ones. They though. are the best ones. Yeah, they're yeah. the best ones. Yeah. Because yeah, you'll yeah. just make something sublime up on the I know. Like that. awesome. They want me to talk about making your idea a reality. And Courage. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is having... I don't know what it is. I, I always say that I'm... I think very differently to a lot of people. That is a matter of fact when you're a founder, but it is the courage to sit there and be like, wow, okay, this is really hard. I literally said to, said to Abby, my fiance, this morning, I go, engineering is really fucking hard. <laughs> and she was, she, she lives and breathes it. Yeah. But it's, it is so hard. It's the courage to keep going. Yeah. That's the, and I pride myself on that. And I think that's why we've never stopped. And it, I get the feeling you're the same type of guy. You will slam shut the laptop and you will go, fuck this. And then a day will go by and you'll be like, oh, yeah. I need that buzz back. I need to go and do something. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I safeguard my mental health. I know now because of what I've been through that I need to, if I don't safeguard my mental health, mm then it's at the detriment to everybody. Yeah, the team will suffer. The, the team will suffer, suffers. the product suffers, but also my relationships suffer. And yeah. actually, you were saying earlier, like, if all else fails, yeah, oh, somebody will will offer me a job. Mm. I'm the worst employee ever. So bear, like whoever does, bear that in mind. But, um, entrepreneurship. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Maybe an entrepreneur. Res- I don't know. Yeah. But um, it it's the people like abby yeah who have to who has has to live with me yeah 24 7 because we work from home like that it's it's those people that i worry the most about when i'm in a really bad place because the toll is huge Mm. it's huge on me but it's huge on her and i don't often think that that's talked about that much no I think it goes back to what you just asked as well. I I I used to be a really angry person. My son was asking me about it, and uh, how old is he? He's eight, and right. then my daughter's five. Um, do you know what the pandemic's an awful thing that's happened? But for me as a father, it's been a bit of a blessing in disguise because had this pandemic not been around, first off, we probably wouldn't have gone into tech. Um, but let's say we did still go into tech uh, or gone into building a bigger business. That's probably a better way of putting it. I think we'll pigeon us, ourselves into tech. It's like, no, you're building a business and tech mm. is your vehicle towards Correct. that. So um, I spent two years with them working from home. And although that's been really stressful, it's also been awesome because I oh, fuck this. I'm going to close the laptop and I'm going to go and sit with my kids because this is the one part of my life that I'm, I'm doing this all for, but I'm still going to be there for them. And you have to show up every single day. Every time. Like, and talking about anger, like that's the biggest thing for me is dealing with anger. I think it's in my DNA and I get there quicker than maybe some others and used to. 
I'd done a lot of work. So one of our investors came in and was like, really great guy. She said, like, here's the money. Money's not a problem to him. <laughs> He's a very wealthy person. Um, but he was like, I want you to have executive coaching because whether they say it's lonely at the top or not, you're going to need someone who's not just your wife to like basically moan at, who also probably doesn't give a shit and is also under as much stress as you are because they're trying to run the fort. And so she doesn't need your baggage coming back to the door and be yeah. like, oh, this person at work said this <laughs> thing and this customer said this thing. She doesn't care. No. She wants you to be successful. And she he... wants you to buy chicken tikka masala on a Friday night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she does. And just make sure you don't forget the bloody naan bread. <laughs> yeah. She, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's very good. I am. Um, but it is that. And she's like, you know, all I just, all she wants is the kids to be safe and well and have a great life. And my my mission is to make that life good by it's not the money but the money becomes that opener for what i can do for the children i don't think i'd really like doing this if i didn't have kids which is a really backward way of thinking because most people are like oh the founder's got to live under the desk 24 7 and they're coding or they're selling their blah 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 i think actually for me and this is only personal other people have their own missions I think if I didn't have the kids, I'd have a completely different mindset, which would be like, let's get rich, let's do it the wrong way, sabotage things. Actually, the the kids have made me really level-headed to realize that I'm doing it for them and not me. Like, it is not for me at all. So they can have a great life. Mm. You know, we, we just, I'd be happy at a six-figure. Like, this is the thing. Like, are you building a unicorn? Yeah, fucking hope so. But I'll be happy when I get to six figures because when I get to six figures, I can take the kids places that they've never been before. Um, we, we can go on little weekend breaks and we can probably not chill out, but like it all becomes a bit more worth it. That's not about me. That's like giving them experiences that they may not have had before, which I didn't have as a kid. So I find that is my driver. My wife is an amazing person who holds the fort and she talk about resilience she's been there since the drug days the suicide days the bouncer days the marines had a little break got a few things out of our system and then we carry on and she's been on this journey the whole way just supporting you know the biggest sort of flag waver at the side of the field and I kind of don't want to let that down. As other well. than obviously falling in love with you, um, what, what do you? Why do you think she does it? <laughs> uh, because I I often think that about Abby. Why they commit to supporting you? Correct. Like uh, I appreciate they love you. Uh, yeah, I know, I know, I know. But, but other than that, like Sean's a nice handbag. Yeah, <laughs> it's an amazing thing to do. To support something through this. It's sacrifice. It is. And that's where a lot of the pressure comes from if we're going to induce pressure, right? So, again, like, not to bring it up, but we'll bring it up. Talking to the, the guys this morning, the VC lot, which I was with, they were saying around, one of them was saying, they get a little bit knocked off by um, some founders saying, oh, this is the toughest thing in the world and... Um, and I, and I buy into this cause they're founders themselves. And I like those, I like VCs who have done the journey cause they get it. And he was saying, uh, about 
there are founders out there who do hold on to the it's really tough and lonely at the top and all that stuff where you have to pinch yourself once more and go oh we did choose to do that you know it could work for a business we've chosen to be in this position i think actually when you then look at the pressure like if you were that founder who is oh it's lonely at the top and you haven't got kids and you haven't got a missus or or wife or a boyfriend or and you haven't got the apartment and you are literally just like pot noodles i've got all the time in the world i'm getting this shit done then i don't think you've got any excuse to say it's beyond hard it's beyond yeah. difficult it's the hardest thing i've ever done and i don't i don't say that because i'm ex-military i've got two kids but you begin to throw that life in the way and even just a girlfriend or just a wife or mortgage dogs you begin to throw more things into the mix the pressure induces because you've got more to look after than just yourself like if you if it's just you man i'd be fucking gunslinging everywhere i'd be <laughs> signing big deals <laughs> like we've signed some big deals recently and I, that's come through pain and crying and stress and even to the point of wanting to give up as i think if i didn't have anyone else around me i'd be like yeah you just go and get it so i don't i'd struggle with that mm. founder loneliness is really interesting cuz i kind of hear what they're saying but equally uh, like i talk about it a lot as you know um i I kind of talk about it in the concept, in the context of having a fiance, soon-to-be wife, two dogs. Yeah, we have a, we have a mortgage. I take virtually no salary, mm. um, but equally, often you have mouths to feed, mm. and that's the pressure I feel. Every single penny that leaves a bank account is painful, mm. and it is a lonely, lonely place. It really is, and yeah, I've chosen to do it. Mm. I can't. Yeah, I have. It, I also feel like it's not my choice because, for some reason, I've just been driven towards this three times now. Yeah, and I feel like I don't. I, I, I do have a choice to do this, but equally, I don't have a choice because doing something else would make me just totally miserable, mm. and that's really hard. It's that problem solving, isn't it? You know, yeah. We talk about courage. Courage is the person who goes, "I'm going to go and find the solution for that problem." Mm. And I, I do think that as a unique person, which quite often is found in entrepreneurs, because they just go, mm, "Well, that's a problem." Everyone knows it's a problem, but very few people are doing anything about it. Cause no one has the courage to go and take on that challenge. I'll go and do it, and off they go, and. I think that becomes the purpose for many of us is is figuring out that problem and finding the solution for it. And that's why that I there's so much gold medal syndrome around when you get that paycheck or that acquisition then it's like oh shit now what. I often just remind myself that I'm probably going to be really miserable when we make it. <laughs> like I've already accepted it. Uh mm. in a way and I'm already going what would be the next thing that we do? And I know if Lupin went wrong, we I would be doing, I'd go out and do it straight away again. Because there is, like you said there, there's something ingrained in our particular way of thinking that is to go and solve the problems and make something come to fruition. I really enjoy that. And But the, the, the difficulty is 
the older you get, the more people you take on that journey with you, which then it becomes more their pressure, more their stress. And we're in, we're coming up to our recession. You know, things are going wrong for companies. Things are going to get really difficult. And the last thing you want as a founder is to be like, oh shit, business gone under, can't get paid. Um, and now it's quite difficult to get a job and we have a mortgage and we've got kids and like those pressures come in. But I think you can use them as ammunition to make you fight harder. And maybe that is the difference between people which give up because, oh, we run out of money, but, you know, I'll just go and get a job now. I've only just left university. And I'm not having a pop of that. There'll be people listening who are from that background uh, who are in maybe that fortunate position. Um, and then the tally will begin and you'll add something more to your family. You'll add something more to your relationships. And like I said, that stress and pressure increases. But we... I think I use that as a driver to fight even harder. I don't want to use the term fight because it means you're always in a battle, but just to keep going and keep pushing and challenging the nose with a, I'll find a way. And I think actually, ironically, the wife, the wife, sorry, my wife and the children uh, empower that within me. Um, one final question, because we've done an hour and 22 minutes, an hour and 23 minutes now. And, um, I really want to grab a beer. Um, what's your relationship like with your ego? My ego? It used to be awful. It used to be awful. I never... Again, this is... You you shouldn't talk about failure within your business in the sense of, oh, if it, you know, it goes under, nothing matters. I think failure is a great thing within the business. No one wants the business to fail. But I remember starting our very first business which was coaching and we made it quite loud people knew what we were doing and i remember no i remember thinking no one can see us fail we cannot fail at this like the worst thing ever would be to be a marine and your business fails just can't happen i won't join the statistics and although that probably helped us achieve some things it's a very backward way of trying to make your business successful and a lot of that was ego it's all in the sentence. I don't want to look like that. I don't want to be seen like that. Oh God, what if they think of this mm. um, when the business doesn't happen or if it doesn't happen? And now I'm quite at ease with the, I'm very happy with the future of the business and where it goes and where it chooses to go and where I can choose to put it. Um, ego is, I'm a leader. I'm a Marine. This is my team. You will listen to what I say against okay, I have no technical understanding or have very limited technical understanding. I have immense imposter syndrome around you, but I'm going to be humble. I'm going to listen. I'm going to try and learn. And think the only place, the correct part of my ego, because ego is a good thing as well. My ego steps in positively when, if I'm bothering to listen to you and try and understand your language and your world, you listen to mine. And I think that's the biggest trade-off, which you don't always get in a business. No, 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 I'm a developer. Or no, I'm a designer. This is how it should look. As long as I'm trying to listen to you and I'll do my utmost to understand your position in the business, even you as a customer, you better listen to what I'm going to say as well and have that humility to meet me in the middle. And I think that is the place that my ego would and probably every now and then gets challenges when you don't do that because I'm trying to learn mm. your skill your world you need to come and learn mine and and i'm talking about some of our team i'm talking about other people outside the business 
because I've put it all on the line to make this happen, mm. you can go and get a job mm. quite quickly. Mm. <laughs> so just remember that. Yeah. And we have those quite open conversations. But my ego was negative when we first ever started business. It's very positive now. I, I'd like to say I don't carry myself around and be very arrogant about what I've done and who I am. And I just want to make the business successful and take people on the journey with us. This has been unbelievable. It has. I knew I'd like you in person. <laughs> it's a small booth to not like. One I know. Room. I knew I would. I knew I would. Um, and I've been. Uh, I've been. <laughs> we've been meant to meet for, yeah, for a while now. Yeah. But I'm so glad we have. Yeah, and and thank you for being getting vulnerable. I know you've spoken a lot about your experience and you've written a book about it and and um and you're now finding it easier to talk about but equally i hope that what this podcast has done has given you a slightly different po uh platform mm. to talk more about lupin which is your passion yeah and building lupin in such a way which is helping people around the world now yeah which is and also this podcast will help other founders because equally this world is fucked up and it's and it needs people to be open with how they're feeling talk about how they've fucked up their fundraisers and <laughs> and it's not all tech crunch articles and um and that is <laughs> yeah. the reality of being an entrepreneur yeah but um you're amazing cheers dude massively appreciate it